Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. We are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will hold hands and explore together the strange, the unusual, offbeat, the bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, let's get some business out of the way right off the bat. Um, I know you're going to love this episode today. We're going to hear about it in a second. I got a little surprise for you, but just to kind of get you excited about it. Here's a couple little things on social media. You can find me. I have a new Instagram account, the Daniel J. Glenn. Uh, that is not a completely self-centered and self-absorbed Instagram name. Daniel J. Glenn was already taken and I just didn't have the heart to boot him off. So the Daniel J. Glenn on Instagram, at Daniel J. Glenn on Twitter. You can follow the show, has its own Twitter feed and its own manager at Fascinating Noun. And you can also check out, there's tons of amazing pictures associated with this episode. So check out Pinterest.com backslash Fascinating Noun. And you can find everything that I just mentioned on the website, FascinatingNouns.com. And you can click on any of the wide assortment of guests and check out their pictures, their links, all that kind of stuff. So if you hear something you like, we will follow up with it. So check it out. Well, you are not going to believe who I have on the show, a voice from the past. I got the old olive here, Olivia Del Vecchio. Did I say your name properly? Yes, you did this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to hear How you. How are you? I'm great. It's it's wonderful to hear your voice. Uh, oh, oh. So what uh, what do we, what do you got in store for us today? This is now this is an old project. I got I had to dust this one off. This is from your days interning here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know there's a little bit of separation, but tell me tell me a little bit about <laughs> what's going to happen today. Okay, so my sister is a footwear designer at Converse. And one of her coworkers has a friend named Sean, who is being interviewed in the episode, uh, in this episode. And he is a sneakerhead. And a sneakerhead is basically somebody who is who collects sneakers and who is involved in the sneaker culture. So Sean works to, or he collects sneakers, and then he works to educate people about the culture of sneakers and sneakerheads in general. So, how educated on the sneaker culture do you think you are? Do I think I am? Yeah, you personally. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I'm educated about the culture, but I like I can appreciate it. I think um, definitely, like since my sister does design sneakers and stuff like that, I definitely have looked at her designs and learned to appreciate that type of stuff. But I'm not really sure if I, would, I'm not like immersed in the culture. Uh, what, what, <laughs> so I'm excited to learn about it. What are you wearing right now? What shoes? Socks. Yeah, that sounded really weird. Hold on. Specifically shoes is what I was referring to. I'm not wearing shoes. <laughs> Just socks. But earlier I was wearing, what? I was wearing first. Okay. I was well, white Converse. If yeah. you're wearing socks, that destroys it, Olivia. You just, you killed my whole little train of thought there. I'm sorry. It's all right. Um, well, so what kind of shoes does your, does your sister design? And have you worn any of her specific designs? Yes. Okay. So she designs specifically specifically for Converse, um, and it's like Chuck Taylors and sneakers like that. And one of her designs was um, a hamburger, 
Converse, so it it just looks like a hamburger. And yeah. so I wear I wear those to class, and people like always comment on them. One time, <laughs> well, a police officer was like, "My sneakers." Will you send he's me? Like, I need to get a pair. Will you send me a picture of those? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna post them on the site. First, send me a picture okay. of the sh- of of your socks so that people understand you're wearing socks and your feet. <laughs> and then okay. send me a picture of the Hamburglar, sh- uh, the okay. Hamburglar desired s- shoes. Um, okay. Well, this is great, and I'm gonna tell you one little tidbit before you go. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. You are gonna learn something unbelievable about Chuck Taylors in this episode that you didn't know okay. about before. Let's just, I'm going to foreshadow it a little bit. I'm not going to give you the answer, but in your best estimation, how old do you think the Chuck Taylor design is? Mm, well, I know they used to wear them like for like in the NBA, like to play basketball. Um, like the fifties, maybe the fifties, maybe. Know. Well, I'm going to quote you on the fifties. Maybe. <laughs> Let's, okay. but listen to the episode and I want you to be, your mind's going to be blown. Okay. Oh God. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited too. Um, all right, Olivia, thanks for putting this together. Um, it's a shame Thank to you. see you go. This is, this is a voice from the past, but I think this will not be the last time we hear from you. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right. Thanks for putting this together. Oh, of course. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Sean, Paper Chaser Williams, thanks for being on the program, man. Thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Love the title of the show, by the way. Fascinating Nouns. I love that. Oh, well, thank you very much. Well, you are one of those now, sir. You are a fascinating noun. So, let's, so Paper Chaser, so do you, do you work um, when an office building gets hit by a windstorm? Are you the guy who goes and collects the documents? Is that what that's for? Is that... <laughs> that's so funny. I'm glad you asked about that. Thank you. So... My nickname, the spelling, the name itself comes from me always being that friend who was always the one people would come to with their ideas. And on top of either saying yes or no, it's a good idea or a bad idea. If it was a good idea, I was always the one who would come up with a way for them to monetize it. The funny thing about the spelling of the name is I actually went with a friend some years ago. Nike used to have an ID shop. An ID means you can go in there and customize your sneakers. They had this store at Elizabeth Street in the Soho section of Manhattan. So a friend of mine said to me, hey, we're going down there today, and we're going to try and get you to do a shoe. So the popular shoe to do at the Nike ID studio at that time was the Air Force One. So I wasn't able to get that shoe done. So I was kind of bummed out. So I'm sitting there customizing another popular model of shoe, the Nike Dunk Low. I'm, pop- I'm customizing the shoe, and now it gets down to me putting something on the back. I wanted to put paper chase. So you're only allowed five characters on the back tab of each shoe. So, of course, paper, five letters. Chaser, six. Problem. So it took me about 25 minutes to figure out how I would be able to spell chaser where people would see it and it would still make sense if they saw this on the back of my shoes. So 20 minutes later, drop the E, there you go. (laughs) And I've kind of liked how it looked aesthetically, so I've always chose to use that spelling 
over the traditional C H A S E R. So it kind of works. Well, I'll say if if, if you it, if you came up with it in twenty minutes, apparently Tumblr had not been out at that time because they they must they stole your they, idea. <laughs> That's a fact. Mm. Yeah, and it's so funny when I set up my Tumblr page, I always think back to that story of um how I had to get rid of that E and the friend who was with me, he was like, come on, let's, let's get this done. Let's get out of here. Cause I was really bummed out that I wasn't able to do the shoot that I <laughs> right. went for. So <laughs> this, this second choice and you know, I'll send you over a picture of the shoe so you can yeah, see please it. Do. It's a really, it's a really fun shoe. I like it, but it was the origins of the spelling of my name because I was so bummed out because I was denied the status to do an Air Force One because I wasn't quote unquote popular enough. Irony of that. All right, so I got a lot of stuff. To, I got a lot of notes on what you just said. So let's get into this Air Force One. We may be getting ahead of ourselves, but I want to mm-hmm. just since you just mentioned it, what does it mean you weren't popular enough? I mean, is this like high school? What's going on? Well, well, at, at the Nike ID Studio at that time, the the popular shoe to do if you were really like one of the cool kids, you know, celebrity, the athlete, the DJ, you know, the different personality types that run around the Soho section of New York and New York City in general, the athlete, the DJ, the, you know, movie actor, whoever, those people were allowed to do an Air Force One at the Nike ID studio. Anyone who wasn't of that status and echelon, you kind of had to get hooked up during like a slow period when people weren't there. So that was the window of opportunity I was going for when I was going to get this shoe. I was supposed to be getting a hookup on, you know, kind of like off-peak time, no popular folks around, and I would have been able to get one done, but I wasn't. I gotcha, I gotcha. I guess we should probably pause here and tell people what you do in your own words. So you are basically a sneaker aficionado. Yes, I would like to call myself these days a kickstorian or the other title that I officially use when I'm doing business as part of my company, Obsessive Sneaker Disorder, with my partner, D. Wells, I um, call myself the professor of competitive response. What does that mean? So that basically means, you know, sort of, again, like the origins of the name Paper Chaser. My role in OSD is to always think about staying 10 steps ahead of what other people in the sneaker industry are doing and trying to find new and innovative ways to appreciate, educate, and elevate people on the sneaker experience. So... That being said, OSD, our talk show, was started in 2007, and we were the first sneaker talk show in the industry. By 2011, we already had plans to roll out our own sneaker education program, which is called Social Study. So in the meantime, in between time, and all of that, and still today, Dee and I are consultants for all sizes of brands and retail shops around the world. We advise people on the proper way to do business. We advise people on ways to kind of educate kids at different levels in school and um, just making sure that we keep the sneaker experience level that's far past the trivial, how many pairs you have and how much you paid and all of that stuff. We see the sneaker industry as a way and a means for a revolution, if you will. We see sneakers as a way for, in particular, minority kids all across the country and across the world to get into an industry that they weren't taught to get into. 
Well, so let me tell you what you're dealing with here, okay? So mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you about my sneaker collection. So if you have if you have 20 mm-hmm. seconds, I'm going to tell you about my sneaker collection. That's <laughs> 20 seconds. <laughs> Not 40, definitely 20. So I have um I have a pair of about maybe 7-year-old New Balance that I take to the gym. I have a pair I've actually so for basketball, <laughs> that's where I I get nice shoes. But I have a pair, I've mm-hmm. two pair, one blue, one red, um, of Gary Payton Nike shoes. I don't remember which one. Really nice shoes. Um, oh. There's some glove, yeah, the, huh? the old glove. Uh, so I have, and I have two colors because they were on sale, and I bought both of them for the price of a full price shoe, and they were really nice shoes. <laughs> and I and I have uh, what I kick around in on weekends is a pair of green Nike with like a flap like a velcro flap over the shoelaces that's probably about four years old with no sole because those were previously a pair of basketball shoes so that's what you're that's what you're looking at here so i am a blank canvas for the world of sneakers because what you are talking about um you know from from my perspective it just blows my mind it's not something i know anything about so let's talk about the history of sneakers where well, where did this come from like what what is what is why sneakers well for me i'm a child of hip hop growing up in new york city so sneakers have been a part of my existence since very early since very young the first pair of sneakers i remember specifically asking my mother for i was 13 years old and from then you know growing up as a young teen in new york city with the rise of hip hop, you know, sneakers were always a constant as part of that because sneakers were a part of the hip hop uniform. You had to make sure that your shoes were among the freshest things on your body when you went outside because if you spent two or three hundred dollars on a brand new outfit and you put on some dirty shoes, you just defeated the purpose. I do. Can you I know? pause you right so, there, Sean? I'm going to pause you right there. Because that is, that is, mm-hmm. I believe that 100%. And I'm going to tell you what drives me bananas is when people have a mm-hmm. suit on, a really nice suit, a nice jacket, <laughs> nice shirt and tie, and then they have friggin' sneakers on. It drives me crazy. It kills the look. But, like, I think people do that as a way to be cool, but it does exactly what you're talking about, which is destroy the look. Well, it's all a matter of perspective when you come at it from that um, angle because... Sneakers actually began in the mid-1800s as a luxury item. So sneakers were actually a more luxurious status symbol when they first were created than shoes were. So it all depends, of course, on the look. And it all depends on how you put it together, which is another important part of how sneakers came to be so important and to be the industry that they are, is because the look and the way you adapt them for whatever purpose is important. So... The industry at this point worldwide is over $55 billion a year globally. That's about $25 billion in just the U.S. So you're talking about people who wear shoes for all different kinds of reasons, and they're not always going to necessarily be for sport. There's a lifestyle category of sneakers now. So lifestyle category of sneakers are shoes that people are intending to wear for, you know, a casual night out or, whatever the function is where they require casual dress, but they don't want to put on a quote-unquote basketball shoe or a running shoe. So a category has actually been invented, you know, 10 to 12 years ago, maybe maybe less, 
for that specific scenario that you're making reference to. But everyone has their own way of taking sneakers and using them for their own way to express themselves and make that declaration of quote unquote being fresh. Now, I guess that makes sense. Um, I, it just, I'm just, it just drives me bananas. Like if you are supposed to wear dress shoes, wear dress shoes. Um, but I do understand what you're saying. It is a look. Uh, now I want to go back to something you said that, that I'd never heard before, you, but you got to back it up, Sean, 1800s, mm-hmm. the first sneaker. Where are you getting that? How does that work? Where'd they come from? This is news to me. Yeah. And the mid, yeah, in the mid-1800s, when you're talking about the process of the vulcanization of rubber, that's where sneakers began because shoes were already a general, normal, everyday thing for people. The process of the vulcanization of rubber is what gave birth to sneakers. And back in the 1800s, mid-1800s, when they were first created, you had to go to somebody specifically to have them make rubber-soled shoes for you. So therefore, sneakers being a luxury item when they were originally created, because not everybody could afford to do. So when you evolve, when you come into the late 1800s with the advent of basketball by James Naismith, and then you go further into the early 1900s where everyone starts to, you know, expand their business as tire companies and also become sneaker companies. This is the early sneaker industry that we're talking about here where it became the thing to wear for sport, for other types of functions and other types of statements being made about your social status. So sneakers began as a luxury item. That's something that a lot of people don't know because very little is spoken about in regard to the process of the vulcanization of well, rubber. What is the vulcanization of rubber? I've never heard that before. What, what is that? What goes on? That's the process by which rubber is processed to the point where it becomes made to be a sole for a shoe. Oh, like taking you, so, and you're talking about taking it from shoes, the rubber tree, like actually from nature and turning it into yes. something that is a form that you can turn it into, like you can shape it into the size of a shoe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're Absolutely. saying that this is so a mid 1800s. So, this is like Civil War time. I mean, you're saying like Lincoln is walking around with some, obviously not Air Force Ones, but does he have rubber soled shoes? Quite possible. No one's been able to confirm who was wearing what back then, but I mean, that process began during that time, you know, the um, 1800s, the mid-1800s. So sneakers, sneakers to the point we are right now, we're talking on this phone from 2016, go back to that time, they have went through sort of a declassification and then a reclassification all at the same time because when they were invented, they were a luxury item. They evolved slowly into a casual item and an item that was mainly just purely for sport. And then when you move into the 50s, you're talking about them coming back again socially and casually more so than ever. And then when you go into the 70s, the 60s and 70s, you start talking about the marginalization of sneakers when you talk about all the places where sneakers were not socially acceptable. Sneakers were not socially acceptable in church. Sneakers were not socially acceptable in clubs. Sneakers were not socially acceptable in certain restaurants. So you had all these different barriers to being able to wear shoes, which in the end of the day forced people, even work, forced people to put their sneakers to the side 
and kind of conform. So now you fast forward again from that time to 2016. Like I said, sneakers are acceptable everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it is a pretty amazing evolution um, because you also what's what's fun is with any collector's item, you know, when you look back throughout history and you can pull something from a specific time period, it kind of takes you to that time period because all of the social forces that were around creating that item, you know, and this exists for everything. Mm -hmm. It's not just shoes, but, you know. Um, for anything you was you know ovens technology you know that kind of stuff if you pull an oven from the forties you know why it was made like that uh, so I mean it's kind of cool to like yeah. these you know historic timepieces and being that just like any other collectible the older something is and then the better can you know the better the condition of the item currently the more valuable it is mm-hmm. so are there people who collect yeah. you know old shoes you know you, like the like you know stuff from the eighteen ninety five when basketball was coming in. Do people have shoes like that that they restore? I mean, are there professionals that could do this kind of thing? Well, a lot of those shoes and things now are usually archived in museums. I just recently, over the summer, had the honor of working with the Brooklyn Museum because they had, during the summer, an exhibition called Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture, which was the first museum exhibition to showcase the history of sneakers and briefly highlight sneaker culture, it went back about 150 years into shoes. And some of those things that I was just mentioning to you about early shoes with the vulcanized rubber process where they showed early sneakers being made, some of that stuff was on display at the Brooklyn Museum exhibition. Um, And I had the honor of working with the Brooklyn Museum on being able to showcase the cultural side of where things are now in contrast to the evolution of what was on display. So being able to archive that stuff, some brands were smart enough. You know, some historians were smart enough. And, you know, folks like the Bobby Shoe Museum in Toronto, they were the people who originally started the exhibition. It started at the Bobby Shoe Museum in Toronto back in 2013. So they were the people who were able to actually source and find some of these early rare gems and be able to put shoes in context of the exhibition and roll it out to show you the early shoes from the early vulcanization of rubber process up to where we are right now. Yeah. So, yeah, there are people that have them. That's amazing. I mean, I guess they're difficult to restore because a lot of those materials are, um, you can't really fix them, you can't replace them without replacing the entire shoe. I mean, I'm part of an antique auto club, and so you have cars that are, you know, these things are, you know, working history but i mean there's people in the club who have cars mm-hmm. from you know 1910 1911 and you know it stuff's restored and it's fixed but it's not really the same car because almost everything's been replaced right. but it looks like the same car you know but i imagine it'd, right. be, it'd be difficult without replacing everything on the shoe but that must have been a really cool exhibition yeah it is it, it's a very good exhibition that's currently on display now in toledo ohio it'll be in toledo ohio for another month or so, and then it's traveling to the High Museum of Art in Atlanta um, after that. So it's the kind of thing that when it was set up and created originally and it was showcased at the Bottom Museum in Toronto, the exhibition got so much press and rave review and the desire for it to come to North America, this this bottom half of North America um, was so great that they decided to put it on a little traveling tour for people to see. 
and to be able to explain that entire process to people through the context of an exhibition. So it's some incredible stuff there. You know, the spikes that Jesse Owens wore when he won the 1936 Olympics are shoes that are on display there. So sneakers are a part of some very, very important moments in history. Um, Some were just sports-oriented and others spoke to more than just sports. You know, as you know, there's a movie coming out in middle in the middle of February called Race, which actually talks about the Jesse Owens story when he went to the Berlin Olympics. Sneakers were a part of that because Jesse Owens actually wore Adidas. Hmm, I didn't know that. He wore a German brand in the 1936 Olympics, and he beat the Germans in Berlin. With their own shoe. With their own shoe, and Hitler was not very happy about it at all. Well, Hitler wasn't happy about a lot of things. I just want to point that out for those who didn't know that. But that was <laughs> but, yeah. totally. He was, he was like always <laughs> upset. But yeah, that, I'm sure the Jesse Owen thing got him. That was, <laughs> but USA. Uh, so let's let's talk about yeah. the um, let's talk about the spike in popularity in sneakers because I would say you know I'm sure you could make an argument that they've, there's been a steady increase in popularity. But I would say that there, there's probably a big spike. Um, you know, basketball, I think, made them really popular. Uh, I don't know if Michael Jordan was mm-hmm. necessarily the figure behind that. But, I mean, you can probably speak more to that. But I imagine, you know, his shoe, the, um, you know, the, the original Jordans, from that point on, sneakers kind of skyrocketed. Would you agree? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think what you have to look at with the rise is when you talk about 1984, 1985, when Michael Jordan coming into the NBA and Nike, Nike giving him his own shoe, you're talking about the guy who was already being touted as the best player in the game. So you're talking about a guy who now has a shoe and so the story goes, which, you know, the popular story that's out there, I'll put it out there like that. The popular story that's out there is that Here you have David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, telling Michael Jordan his shoes don't have enough white on them, so he can't wear them. So you tie that reaction to his shoes into the fact that also in the mid-'80s, there was a lot of racism going on at different various big cities in the country, New York in particular, um, but across the country. Well, you also had had Bird versus Magic Johnson right around this time as well, which is is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, you also had that. Well, you also had that, but you also had the hip-hop generation listening to the story of Michael Jordan being told by this old Jewish man, who happens to be white, that his shoes don't have enough white on them. So that already created a rebellious atmosphere that fed into the popularity of Jordans, because now you're saying, how are you going to tell the best player on the planet, who just happens to be black, what shoes he can wear to be the best? So there was this perfect storm of a lot going on in the country at when, at the time when Michael Jordan's shoes came out and the whole controversy started that led to the boom, single-handedly. There were ingredients there from other factors of what was going on in America, but Michael Jordan single-handedly changed the level of response and the importance of sneakers. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's always funny what people kind of latch on to. And I, that story makes a lot of sense to me. But I will say, it wasn't that David Stern was telling him what shoes to wear. 
he was just asking them to conform with the standards that everyone else in the NBA had. And there were a lot of there were a lot right, of black right. players in the NBA as well. So it wasn't like only the black players yep. must wear white shoes and the white players could wear any color they wanted. It was just asking him to conform. Yeah. But that in and of itself, especially with the young generation, asking young people to conform um, is exactly what makes yep. them not want to conform. Right. People don't understand exactly. that. So, so there's always the the minute someone asks someone like a Michael Jordan, who, again, was the best player in the NBA, and he had just got there. Coming out of college, this was the guy everyone wanted, but not everybody had. And even how some of the old, um, the old Nike commercials talk about when it was time for him to be drafted, the Portland Trailblazers actually had a chance to draft Michael Jordan, but they didn't because they wanted a big man. See how that turned out. <laughs> so it just goes to show you there were so many factors at play in terms of the perception of what was being said and who it was being said to and the way it was being taken by so many people. And, yeah, the rebellious nature of it is what led to the fever pitch of Michael Jordan's shoes. And then you add to that, he just kept doing incredible things in them. So that just helped it for so long. And even now, the Air Jordan brand sells $2.5 billion a year globally in product. There's no sneaker company that's ever going to top that, I don't think, globally on a year-to-year basis. Well, it's pretty amazing that you have a guy who hasn't played in you know, almost you know, 15, 16 years and that his shoe is still being sold and it's still the number one shoe. And there's a line of them. It's not like, oh, it's just the new Air Jordan. It's the, he has an entire line of Jordan brand shoes, which is just crazy to me. Yep. On February 14th, the Air Jordan 30 will be released. That's insane. Do you have yours reserved or how's that going to, so, do you think people will die trying to get these shoes? How many, what, what do you think the body count will be? Well, that's the, well, well, that's the thing. I'm glad you, you asked that question. Air Jordan's current line of shoes, since he hasn't been playing, have struggled in comparison to the shoes that he wore when he was playing. So basically anything after his second retirement, you're talking 1920 and up, has struggled as a signature shoe. The addition, the, the number 19 and the number 20, not 1920. Right. The number 19, 1920, and up in the signature line. And those shoes have struggled. Some of them, you know, there's a blip on the radar here and there with some shoes in between have done well. But overall, the legacy post-Michael Jordan's retirement, his shoes have struggled to sell. And the reason why they have struggled to sell is because everyone wants the shoes that are attached to him actually doing things in them. Whether the youngsters have seen them play or not, they want to be able to see the shoe that he won the slam dunk contest in, that he won his third, fourth, fifth, sixth ring in. They want to see all of those shoes. They want to be a part of that experience to act like they were, they're in the know. Everyone wants to be associated with the winner. Nobody wants to be associated with you with losing. So the shoes that represent him being the best player he can be are the shoes that are the most popular. All the shoes that don't tell that story are not popular. That's a really good point because there's also like throwback shoes where you have re-releases of editions that were popular. Right. Um, the retro. That's the ones that sell. The current stuff doesn't sell. Now, those retro ones, are there ways to tell, like, the original from the retro? I assume there are. What, what are they? Yeah. Well, it all depends from shoe to shoe. Sometimes the color's a little off. Sometimes the shape is off. Sometimes they use a different type of lace. 
you know, sometimes there's a Jumpman on some, there's Nike Air on others. There's a few distinguishing factors between them that you know if you got a, an original shoe or a retro from like 2000 this or another retro that just came out last year. Nike does this thing where they manufacture the shoes each time, and there's a way for you to tell the difference between which year you have that, and they also have the fact that there's a manufacturing date stamp inside on the tongue. <laughs> there is that. Shoe. That is true. <laughs> oh, you know what? So going on from that, there are a lot of shoes, like individual. Let's talk touchstones for a general audience, right? There are definitely touchstone mm-hmm. shoes where a specific shoe, like the you know the first Air Jordan that people remember. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a couple. I had yep. some of them, like the Reebok pump. I had the Shaq pumps. And that was a very distinguishing Absolutely. shoe. But I would say, I don't uh-huh. know. You can you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think the first like really recognizable high-selling shoe was the Adidas Clam. Is it the Clam Toe? Is that what it's called? The the white? The, su- the Superstar, a.k.a. Shell the Shell Toe. Toe. That's what I was thinking of. I was thinking of a clam shell like when you go to a yep. restaurant. But that's not it. That's a little I know. Well, that- I'm trying. No, no. No, that's that's exactly the inspiration. And I had those You're shoes, right. by the way, it Sean. Called... I had a pair of those, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Now you know what's funny is, last year, this same time last year, Adidas had me host a weekend workshop session on Saturday and Sunday last year in New York to teach people about the history of the Adidas Superstar. The Adidas Superstar now is 46 years old, and it was actually the shoe that came along and changed basketball shoes. It's an important shoe in the history of sneakers. Now, so why is, it, why is it important? Well, it's an important shoe because from about the nineteen mid-1920s up until the 60s, the basketball shoe didn't change. Everything that came out for people who play basketball and was based on or a derivative of the Converse All-Star, All-Star or the Chuck Taylor. So everything had the rubber toe cap, had the canvas upper with very little support and very little grip on the bottom, but they made do. So the Superstar came along and became the first all-leather upper, and it also had an herringbone traction pattern on the bottom, which they still use today on the bottom of basketball shoes. If you look at your shoes you play ball in and you see that zigzag pattern, pattern on the bottom there, that started on the Adidas Superstar. So the clam a.k.a. the shell toe, was actually invented to be toe protection. Oh, like like steel toe. It was in, yeah, it was an evolution of toe protection because one of the biggest injuries back in the 60s, the late 60s when the Superstar was created, was slip and falls, ankle twists, and people getting their toes stepped on. So that shoe solved those problems. That was, that was a real problem that they addressed was people got their feet stepped on? <laughs> all sneakers are create. All sneakers, unless it's a retro, all sneakers are made to solve a problem. They are all made to address something that may not have been addressed in the previous sneaker, which is going back to the popularity of Air Jordans. That's exactly why there are so many different models. They were all made to address a new problem or a different problem that Michael Jordan wanted to have addressed each season. That's really, I mean, I guess that, that makes it, when you put it like that, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to talk about stepping on shoes really quickly. I want you to explain something to me and then we're uh-huh. going to come back to these touchstones. Cause I think this is really important. Um, but why, mm-hmm. you know, and do the right thing. I'm sure you've seen that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. They make it very clear yep. 
And they specify that it is deadly sometimes to step on a black man's shoes. Why is that? Yep. Well, you know, it's funny. That shoe is actually one of the most important shoes I own in my collection. That actual Air Jordan that Bugging Out was wearing yeah. <laughs> when in that scene. But it was also part of that derivative, that, that scene, that issue comes as a derivative of hip-hop culture and hip-hop rules. You don't step on somebody else's shoes. If you do, you say sorry, and you keep it going. But there was a machismo thing going on at the same time where it was like, I stepped on your shoes, so what? And that's what usually led to a lot of fights and unnecessary conflict between people just behind someone stepping on shoes. There was a whole lot of bravado. There was a lot of machismo involved with the fact that, yeah, I got my fresh sneakers on, and they're going to stay fresh. So if someone steps on them and you're out in, you know, wherever you are, now you got dirty shoes on. You got a scuff, you got dirty shoelaces, you got whatever it is. It has totally taken away from the effect you were going for when you put your outfit on in the morning. Well, so that makes, when you put it like that, it makes sense. But, I mean, you could substitute stepping on shoes for anything. You could substitute it for flicking a cigarette in someone's direction or a toothpick or spitting in someone's direction. I mean, it's, it's anything that's to show a sign of disrespect on purpose. So it's not specific to the, right. the only reason why it's specific to the shoe is because now the shoe looks dirty. It's specific to the shoe because it's a level of disrespect to you because the person stepped on your shoe. And number two, now your shoe's dirty and it's taken away from your outfit. That is. But one of the underlying tones to that scene and do the right thing that is very important is a lot of people missed it until maybe the last five to seven years was the issue of gentrification that was being addressed in 1989 in that scene. And that's why I hold on to that shoe, because being someone who um, is born and raised in Brooklyn and seeing how Brooklyn has changed, that shoe is a constant reminder of what has happened. So, you know, just to play out the scene, you know, a guy, a white guy walking his bike after just finished riding it, he gets off, he's walking to his house, and he accidentally rolls his bike tire over Bugging Out's brand new Air Jordan. But as he's rolling them over his Air Jordans, he's going into his house. So there's the conflict there of this black man who's upset because a bike tire just rolled over his $100 sneakers. And there's a white guy who he doesn't think belongs in the neighborhood who just went up into the house in his neighborhood, in his house. So there's the level of, wait a minute. You're worried about $100 sneakers. This guy's he's going up in a house. So what's important to you? You see what I'm saying? And that's one of the things that has played out, actually spike forecasting what was going to happen in Brooklyn in 1989 when he did that scene. He was kind of forecasting what was going to happen. And it's happening on that very block where Do the Right Thing was filmed, as well as most of Brooklyn. That's where it's happening. So that's an important shoe for me because it speaks to so much of what's important to you. You worried about your $100 sneakers and keeping them clean, or are you worried about ownership, investing in your neighborhood, making sure that the culture and the vibe of your neighborhood doesn't disappear? What's more important to you? Well, that's a really, it's an interesting point. Um, it's funny that the shoe, because basically what you're saying is that having the house in your neighborhood is more important than the shoe. Uh, it's kind of funny that you own the shoe, which is actually on the opposite end of that point. 
but yet it reminds you of the positive end of that point. Yeah. Hmm. It's, there is a lot going on in that scene. It's, um, it's a really good movie. Um, there's a lot of a lot of what we're talking about kind of revolves around that because there's a lot of hip hop culture in there, um, and it has a lot to do with looks and shoes and and the whole thing. Like that movie really encompassed a lot of that. Uh, yes, so it let's, does. Let... And, and it talks about how you know some people have a priority for the neighborhood, and other people have a priority for what just makes them go. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, well, let's, so let's talk about some other of these, of these key shoes. So one of the other ones, and it's still popular today. Now, this is a shoe I don't understand. I'm not going to lie to you. And this is also a shoe that I think yeah. has um, – talk about gentrification. What a segue here. This shoe kind of has spread along all different cultures and backgrounds have accepted this shoe at some point. Uh-huh. I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, the Chuck Taylor All-Star, uh-huh. um, which has at some point yeah. been worn by just about everyone. I think they even make shoes for dogs. The Converse Chuck Taylor is the highest-selling all-time sneaker ever in history. It is currently at over 1 billion pairs sold since its invention in 1917. Wait, 1917? That's correct. The Converse All-Star came out in 1917, and some years later, Chuck Taylor's name was put on it because he was such an advocate and passionate seller of the shoes that they honored him by putting Chuck Taylor's name in the patch on the side of the shoe. But the shoe's been around since 1970. So this shoe's coming up on 100 years. That's yep. crazy. I had no idea. Um, yeah, this is, so this is a shoe. Uh, we'll put pictures of it so you can see it. But why do you think it's been so accepted by so many different types of people? Because the Chuck Taylor is actually the shoe that went through that timeline of what we were talking about. It's the only shoe that existed through that entire situation consistently. Other shoes have come and gone. Like I said, other companies that were tire manufacturers have tried to make shoes and come and gone. You know, but the Chuck Taylor, since it was created, has been basically the DNA of it, the same shoe for almost 100 years. And whatever those ingredients were, They've transcended so much time and so many different movements that it just became an acceptable standard in so many circles in the rock and roll set, in hip-hop, in skating, in basketball, in a whole lot of things. Now, it's fallen out of favor in basketball. There's no one on the planet playing in Chuck Taylor since about 1972. (laughs) But, But in all of the other circles where it's been accepted, and handed down, you look at the rock movement, you look at the punk movement, you look at all of those different movements where there's a standard code of dress. The Chuck Taylor has been a part of that in a lot of those different movements. So it never left because it always was adopted as part of a standard for a movement. Well, you know, it's funny. So me personally, I think it's the ugliest shoe on the planet. I would never wear one. I, I don't know what it is. I just think it's it's... There's something about it I just don't like. However, I think what I don't like about it is its simplicity, and I think its simplicity is exactly what made it so acceptable um, and adaptable. You can there's different colors, there's different, you know, they have high tops, low tops, everything. I think that's what made it popular. But what's interesting about what you said mm-hmm. is that no one wears it in basketball. Well, why not? Well, I'll tell you exactly why. I'm going to beat you to it, Sean. Is because 
it is not uh, built for there's too much there's been too many advancements in shoe technology that basically render it obsolete and probably damaging to your foot arch arch for your ankles for everything so let's talk about tech the technology of shoes there's two shoes I want to talk about, mm-hmm. um, and the first one yeah. I, I foreshadowed earlier is the Nike. The Re- I'm sorry, geez, oh my God, strike me down. The Reebok Pump. Uh, I had some of these. This mm-hmm. was a very iconic shoe. You want to run down exactly what it did? Well, it's interesting that when Reebok launched the pump in 1989, Reebok was actually a front-running sneaker company. They were actually doing very well and beating Nike in the market. It's hard to believe Nike being the worldwide juggernaut they are now that at one point in history they were losing to somebody. And the Reebok pump actually represents a point in time where Nike was losing to Reebok. And the shoe itself, the technology in the shoe where, you know, an air bladder was in the shoe or different air bladders were in different sections of the shoes allowed you to squeeze on a pump and air would go into those different air pockets at different regions of the shoe to customize your fit. So the shoes were $175 when they first came out in 1989. That was astronomical. That was, number one, far past what any Air Jordan cost at the time. And number two, it became a status symbol kind of to own them because they cost so much and people were being killed for them. Yeah, that was kind of, that's kind of the dark side of the Reebok pump. And also I think because they were so noticeable, like you could look down and immediately instantly recognize it as a Reebok pump. And I think that, mm-hmm. that might've been part yep. of, you know, the, the head hunting aspect of that. But what's really cool about the shoe. So this wasn't the first advancement that included air, like the Air Jordan, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, had actual air pockets for the sole. And that was kind of a marketing strategy, right? Was there any real benefit to that? Well, no. Well, air, air, the air technology was incorporated into Jordan's when the Air Jordan line launched, but it actually originally started in 1979 in the Nike Air Tailwind. There's an aerospace engineer by the name of Frank Rudy who actually pitched the air technology to numerous shoe, t- shoe companies and Nike at the time being, you know, very aggressive and looking to innovate the running world. They're the ones who adopted the technology. Adidas was actually offered air technology too, and they turned it down. And Nike ended up being the ones who put air technology in the air tailwind in 1979. So in 1979, you fast forward to 1984, 85, there were a sh- few shoes in between one of those being the Air Force One in 1982 that had air in them. It wasn't until 1987 where you began to see the air in the shoes because a gentleman by the name of Tinker Hatfield, who still designs for Nike today, came up with the idea of actually cutting a hole out in the middle of the midsole and showing people the air technology. So air technology now is a bit of an obsolescence, but... It represents such an iconic period in time in the history of sneakers that it still looks cool in shoes, but it's not the technological juggernaut it once was. Well, now it's almost standard in most shoes, or at least in the Nike shoes. There's very few Nikes that don't have it, I I imagine, right? Well, Nike has evolved the technology somewhat. They kind of have a balance between air and some shoes and another technology that came out in 1995 called Zoom Air. So... All of it is cushioning. So at the end of the day, there's two types of technological advancements in shoes. 
there's cushioning systems, and there's energy returns. So both of those go through a time where one is more popular than the other. Right now, energy return is more popular than cushioning systems, simply because people want, in particular in the running world, they want that energy return where they don't feel like they're about to throw up their guts when they finish running because they're just so tired and their legs hurt so bad that they don't know what else to do. Um, running's more popular than ever recreationally, and the technological advancements require energy return for people to feel like they're getting the best benefit. Back in the 70s, it was all about the impact and the cushioning from it. Now it's about a bit of the cushioning, but also that cushioning needs to provide some energy return and kind of help people propel through. So what exactly is energy return? I've never heard that before. What, what, is the, what does it do? Energy return is when you're, you're running and the energy you've exerted to run translates into an impact point in the shoes, but at the same time, it also regenerates and comes back to the runner to mm, propel okay. them. So air is a, just a cushioning system where if you're running, it's absorbing impact and it stops right there. It's a repetitive impact burst. Bow, bow, bow. But energy return, you therefore create this cycle of impact, absorption, propulsion when the energy gets dispersed back to you. That is a big advancement. I can see where that would be more popular because there's more to it because there is a cushioning aspect to it. It's just not as much, and it, yeah. it helps you out as a benefit to it. Yeah. The best shoe on the market which utilizes energy return is from Adidas. It's shoe. It's a technology called Boost. Now, Boost technology is exactly what I've just explained to you. And by all accounts, everyone that I know that runs and trains and has done things in different sports and different arenas of um, athletic endeavor, Boost is definitely a superior technology now to Air, to Zoom, to anything else. And in my personal experience with it, it's the best thing since sliced bread really? right now. Do I expect for there? Do I expect for there to not be any more advancements? No, because I'm all for more advancements that will help. But right now, there is nothing in the entire sneaker market to me and to a whole lot of other people better than Boost technology. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's a bold statement, Sean. In 30 years of sneakers, I haven't seen a sneaker that has actually done what it says it's going to do technologically. And at the same time, it's been, imp it's been put into shoes that are also aesthetically pleasing and can make a fashion statement. Well, clearly you've never had on a pair of L.A. Gear catapults, sir. <laughs> That's funny you mentioned that shoe because you do know they were sued <laughs> for that shoe. Really? Why? No, I didn't. Yeah, Reebok sued them for that shoe because it was a direct bite of the Reebok pump. Oh, well, so at the same time, I didn't know that. I, I thought the catapult had like a weird like um, little lever in the, in the actual sole that was supposed to make you jump higher. Yeah, that was that whole, that was a bunch of lies. Right, no, I believe that. Well, actually, actually, no, actually, no, I have to correct, correct myself. Yes, the catapult was the one way that it claimed that you could jump higher. Yes, the, 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 Nike okay. at the no, same Re time. Reebok, Reebok didn't sue for that. Reebok sued them for their own knockoff of a pump. Um, but that catapult, which was Carl Malone's shoe. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah that, it was, yeah, it was. <laughs> that shoe totally did not. 
that that's one of those shoes that made a bold claim that no one could prove. But back in the eighties, who cared? No one cared. Um, well, that's, so I think if I remember correctly from my childhood and pulling up dusty memories here, so I had a pair of um, Shaq had a pump, which was kind of the uh, penultimate pump, if you will, yeah. because that came out and that was that was the ultimate pump in that style with the big tongue and the big orange ball on it. Yep. Yeah. The, the Shaq 2s, which I also had, big Shaq fan at the time, mm-hmm. had uh, was also a pump, but it was called an Insta Pump, which is yep. really stupid because you had to have this other, you had to have this whole technological piece. You had with, to have uh, the bladder pressure. Yep. The, yeah, and so you just you pump, you couldn't manually pump it. Yep, so yep. that one, so like the pump tongue, it just filled up the tongue. This one filled up the the ankles, and at the time, Nike had a pump because a friend of mine had them, mm-hmm. and it was a very similar thing, and it just pumped up right around the ankle. Maybe yep. that might be. Did they get sued for that? Nike and Reebok were at the time both trying to develop pump technology in shoes, and Reebok actually did it better. Reebok's, Reebok's shoes, it actually worked better. Nike never had a true level of success with the shoes that they came out with. So there was the air pressure, which actually just released, re-released last week for the first time since it came out in 1990. Um, there was the air command force. And there was the Air Force 180 pump. All three of those shoes were Nike's version of pump technology. The air pressure, that had a little pump bladder like some of the shoes that you mentioned. Not a popular shoe. A lot of people didn't like it because of the cost also. Didn't really fly over well. The Air Command Force and the Air Force 180 pump were worn by David Robinson, who, you know, Mr. Admiral's neighborhood at the time. He was wildly popular. Everybody wanted his shoes. Did well, still not as popular as the Reebok pump, though. So the pump technology carried on through you. Michael Chang, you had Shaq, you had uh, so many other people who were wearing pump technology in the NBA, in the NHL. Wayne Gretzky even had a pump on his hockey shoes back then. Um, So the pump technology just across sports, was more appealing because they put the pump shoe on so many people that mattered back then. It wasn't just about Michael Jordan then. It was about Shaq. It was about Dominique Wilkins. It was about David Robinson. It was about Charles Barkley. It was about so many other people. Michael dominated, but Reebok actually was able to employ a strategy where, okay, Nike, you got one popular or two popular guys. We have all of these popular guys in various sports. So the pump technology really for Nike didn't do as well as it did for Reebok. And the Reebok technology just, even to this day, I could pull out a pair of Reebok pumps now and I could pump up that bladder. It would work. Well, you know, it's funny how like at the time, because I was a dumb kid at the time and I had a pair of these Shaq pumps and I thought they were great. I loved them. Mm-hmm. But they were really heavy, and everyone would make fun of them for being so heavy, and mm-hmm. they really were. I think that was like the real downside because I like a tight shoe when I'm playing sports, mm-hmm. and so I I liked having you know the the pump on it. But right. man, they were really heavy. Well, that was one of the things that we made reference to again with the Chuck Taylor. Now, you spoke earlier about the evolution of technology. It actually wasn't the evolution of technology; it was the evolution of the player, which inspired shoe companies to find new technology. So could you imagine, an example of that is what I'm getting ready to ask you. Could you imagine Dr. J doing everything he did in a Converse Chuck Taylor? 
Not really. Not but at he all. did, though, right? No, no he no? didn't. No, he didn't. What did he wear? He wore Converse, but he wore a later evolution of Converse um, shoes. But the Chuck Taylor, even, you know, when you look at folks like Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell, those guys were seven feet tall. They didn't have to jump that high. They were wearing Chuck Taylors. They didn't have to jump that high to do anything. So once they were able to run to their spots, in particular on the floor, where they did their thing, the requirements of the shoe were minimal. You have the evolution of a player now who, take an Allen Iverson, for example. Take someone like a Nate Tiny Archibald from the 70s. You take people who are handling the ball. They're running from one side of the court to another at speeds never heard of before. They're running, they're cutting, they're jumping, they're dunking. They're doing all these things that athletically for the last 40 or 50 years, people were not doing. So now the feedback from the athlete is, yeah, these shoes suck. When I try to do this, when I try to do that, when I'm doing this afterwards, my feet feel like ice picks are in every single nerve ending. That forces the footwear companies to find new technology and design shoes in a way that can cater to the athletic abilities of a player. That be it running, that be it soccer, that be it football, basketball, baseball, whatever. So it was the advancement of the athletic abilities of the players in all of these sports that calls for technology to change, not the other way around. That is pretty amazing. I mean, I guess that makes perfect sense because especially if they're under contract and they have to wear this shoe, they want it to be comfortable. Yep. Um, so let's uh, let's move into the last segment of this technology section, mm-hmm. and that would be the um, the power laces as seen in Back to the Future 2. Uh-huh. Uh, so do you know anything about these? Because I know a little bit. Well, I mean, there really isn't much to tell other than the story of Back to the Future 2, the shoes were supposed to, you know, the whole 2015 theme and the auto lacing and the hoverboard and, you know, the whole folklore of which, you know, the shoes were designed by Tinker Hatfield, the same gentleman who's responsible for a lot of the Michael Jordan shoe success. That gentleman, when he designed the shoe for Universal for Back to the Future 2, you know, sneaker culture was not what it is today. So, the shoe is basically a rare, you know, movie archive novelty thing until the popularity of sneaker culture became what it is and Nike became what they are where people started saying, wow, wouldn't it be cool if those shoes actually really came out in 2015? But technologically, auto lacing, I mean, there's been different variations of auto lacing or, you know, a different way to streamline your lacing for decades, Puma has something called the disc. Um, you know, there's there's so That's much. Right, other, I remember that. There's there's so much technology out there that kind of has to the same effect. But the auto lace thing was just so cool because it was like, oh, hit a button and you know, zip zip. When, which is kind of misleading because it's not auto lacing. It's not lacing anything. It's actually tightening. So when you look at that scene in the movie where he puts them on and they do that, they're not lacing. They're tightening up, which you look at variations of what the pump is. The pump is you squeeze the bladder and the shoes tighten up in various areas for a custom fit. You look at the Puma disc, you turn the dial, 
and the tension of the shoe suddenly has the same effect as lacing. So for me, it's not a wow factor for me. For a lot of people who are, you know, nostalgia whores and people who have to have certain things in their collection to say, oh, I got that because it was in this movie. I got a pair simply for the decorative factor of it. Well, see, well, these shoes actually exist is the point that I'm making. Like, they made a version of this, and the power laces work. The shoes actually videos exist. videos of Michael J. Fox doing them. Yeah, the, the shoes actually exist, and though that real shoe with the now, now Nike patented auto lacing will be coming out in spring of this year. People were expecting it to come out with the auto lace function last year, but two years ago, 2014, Nike actually released a bunch of pairs for auction that didn't have the auto lace. Aesthetically, they were everything but the auto lace function. So, and last year, or maybe the year before last year, I think it was. Actually, no, the year before. It was 2014 also. Because the shoes were made under the permission of Universal Studios for the movie, the rights to the shoes technically belong to Universal. So Universal Studios made their own version of the shoes and sold them themselves. The Nike version went out via auction, and all the money made through the auction on eBay went to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So there were people who paid in upwards of $40,000 for the Nike version of the shoes without auto lace, without auto lace. They had to lace their own shoes. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Well, you slip them on. There, there was no lace function at all. It's just a slip on and you wear it. Um, Universal's version was also just a slip on and you wear it, but Universal released the shoe under the guise of it being a Halloween costume shoe. There's no Nike swoosh on the side, but the shoes do light up and they aesthetically look exactly like the Nike Air Mag, which is in Back to the Future 2. The Halloween costumes version is $99. And for another $40, you can actually get the hoverboard. <laughs> That's the version I bought. <laughs> A little more within your price range. <laughs> yeah. The shoes light up. The shoes look just like the ones Nike put out with some, some small differences. But I'm okay with $150 ship total for the shoes and the hoverboard that are just going to sit up on a mantelpiece for decoration as opposed to a $40,000 shoe that is too ugly to wear anywhere, anyway. Just to say I got a shoe with auto lace. I'll pass. <laughs> well, you know how it works. Technologies cost a fortune when they first come out. You'll be buying auto laces soon enough, I'm guessing. Well, Puma actually on their displays model actually has beat Nike to the punch and already released a shoe with auto lace with the same effect of the disc that I was making reference to. So the Puma disc shoe actually now has that same disc function with the tension strings. Instead of being able to turn a dial for the tension to tighten up, now you just hit a button and the shoe automatically tightens. Same effect as auto lace. That's amazing. It's amazing what people put their their DN, uh, research and development money into. But yep. um, 
<laughs> well, Sean, we are out of time because I could ask you a million other ridiculous questions. Well, we got to do a part two. Let's do a part two. I'm all for it. We do. We absolutely do. Um, so let's run down. Where can people find you? I know people are going to be really interested in getting in touch with you. Well, people can find me through various outlets. Through Instagram, it's OSD underscore Paper Chaser, P-A-P-E-R-C-H-A-S-R. On Twitter, it's at OSD Live, O-S-D-L-I-V-E. Um, our website is OSDLive.com. You can find me through there. Um, you can also find the audio archive and the video archive of all 365 episodes of our podcast. And um, you can hit me through there, either one of those three. And I'm always looking forward to talking sneakers with anyone who will listen. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. Well, Sean, thanks so much for being on the show, man. This has been very educational. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it to the max. Well, and you, I think we've established this as a fascinating noun. I think we've, we've accomplished our goal. Uh, absolutely. Man, I can't wait to do it again. Well, thank you, and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night.